Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. have you sit, but it's only for like 10 seconds, so I'm going to have you stand up while we're... <laughs> Uh, Our passage this morning is found in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 to 3, and then verses 10 and following. So let me read for us. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let me pray and ask him to bless us as we look at his word uh, in depth. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to come and uh, for the time we've given us to study through the book of Philippians and all the beautiful themes and wonderful truths about the gospel of Christ that we've seen. We're grateful for the way that you have engaged with us and met us. And we pray that's uh, This last time as we're opening the pages of Philippians that you would show us once again your goodness and grace to your people. Would you bless us? Would you be with us? Would you help us to see things we would not see on our own by gathering together and your spirit being poured out among us? And Lord, I pray for myself, uh, the distractions of uh, my own mind and heart, uh, my frailty as a human being would prevent me from holding forth wonderful truths, but I pray that you would be pleased uh, to enable me to do so this morning. Would you bless me? Would you bless all those who are gathered here as we open your word together and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Please have a seat. After 40 years on the run, Clarence Moore, a fugitive in Kentucky, turned himself into authorities so that he could get medical attention. Now, this is back in 2015, so it's been a few years since this took place. Clarence was convicted of a robbery in 1967, and after attempting several prison escapes, he finally succeeded in escaping prison in 1976. And when he did so, he took on a new name, lived a new life in order to conceal his true identity and his past crimes. And so for 40 years, 
He lived a lie, lived under a different identity. Even the, the person he was living with when uh, he was arrested had no idea that he had this kind of a past. And because he was able to hide who he really was, he, was, he, he, uh, he struggled because he didn't see the flaw in his plan. And here was the flaw. Uh, because uh, he had taken on a, a, a different identity, uh, he couldn't uh, receive the normal amenities that you and I take for granted, like a legitimate identification card, applying for Social Security, opening a bank account, using a credit card, buying insurance, or even receiving government medical assistance. And so he turned himself in in 2015 after 40 years. And at that point, he was 66 uh, when he turned himself in. He was suffering from poor health due to a previous stroke that left him weak, left him unable to speak uh, very well. And the county sheriff involved in his arrest said, as soon as he saw us after he turned himself in and called them to come pick him up, he started crying and he said, I just want to get this behind me. I want this to be done. And so Clarence was examined at the hospital, treated, and then sent to prison. And when he arrived at prison on the following Monday, the sheriff said that Moore thanked him for his kindness. <laughs> it's a great story. As I was thinking through this end of the Philippians, I thought about Clarence. In our sin, we're like Clarence. We're on the run. We can't go home. We can't go back. We, we can't be completely honest with ourselves or other people about who we are and what we've done. We are cosmically condemned, but we refuse to acknowledge it, and we try to hide from God, all the while depending on the resources that he has established for our good in the world. Um, we live under a twofold, twofold fear, one of being caught and all of that ending, but then also a fear of what's the punishment actually going to be like and what the Bible says is we're all like Clarence in that way. There's not a single one of us who's not like that. We all have sin in our lives. And this is why Paul's ending to the book of Philippians is so fantastic. Because in chapter 4, verse 23, he says this, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So he's talking to sinners like you and me. And he's, it's his, his request, his desires for the grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ to be with our spirits because he knows us. He knows that Jesus is the one who covers over all of our sins. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel, of, gospel by the way, means good news. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that good people get to go to heaven. That's bad news for me and it's bad news for you because none of us is good and goes to heaven because of anything that we do. The good news of the gospel is, through Jesus Christ, God forgives all of our sins and covers them in Jesus so that we are considered as righteous as Jesus. Because when God looks at our record, and he looks at the things that we have done and left behind, and he looks at the things we're doing, he sees the covering of Jesus upon us. Martin Luther had this great illustration that is perfect for a cold-ish day in Florida. Cold, is, it, is it in the 50s? That's freezing cold here. It's cold. It's cold. But, you know, some of you, I was talking to Mark earlier, and he was talking about how, how many feet of snow, where was this? Buffalo. buffalo, what, six feet or something crazy? Okay, so we'll imagine buffalo for this because it's just a little mist out there for us. So Martin Luther had this illustration. He said, imagine you have a cow pen, and in the cow pen, cows have done what cows will do. And so there were, there's manure all over the bottom of the cow pen. And so when you walk out there, you have on your boots, you have your shovel, you have all these things, and you just have to clean it up. 
But he said, that's what our hearts are like in their sin. But he said, in Christ, God has left this blanket of snow on the ground that covers over everything so that what you see is clear and pure and magical. And in the same way, he says, that's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He's covered over all the manure of our lives. It's still there, but in Christ, it's covered over so that when God sees us, he sees our righteousness, he sees our goodness, he sees, uh, he sees Christ's righteousness, he sees Christ's goodness instead of ours. And this is why in Isaiah chapter 1, it says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. It's beautiful, right? And so he doesn't just begin this way in Philippians in 4.23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's a great way to end, but it's also the same way he began because in chapter two, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, we read, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is God has bookended this letter with grace and it's the same with our lives. It's, from, it's by grace from beginning to end. Grace is not simply God's provision to cover us when we fail, but the essential ingredient God gives us in order to succeed in the Christian life, the power for living the Christian life. Uh, Paul is telling in his letter to the Philippian Christians that it begins with a desire for God's grace. He, he begins with a desire for grace to infuse every part of our life and anybody who's a mature Christian knows this. We have to begin with grace, and we're going to end with grace, and it has to be grace in the middle. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said, it's grace at the beginning and grace at the end, so that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us there is the thing that helped us in the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. The Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace. It ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace, by the grace of God I am what I am, yet not I, but the grace of God which is at work within me. And so as you read through the book of Philippians, we're ending Philippians, so you realize I'm giving you a summary, right? <laughs> Here's a summary of the book of Philippians. Is, uh, in chapter 1, verse 6, he's giving us this overview. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, God began a good work in you, and he will finish it. Not you, he will. It's by grace. Chapter 2, verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is working in you. It's by grace. In chapter 3, verse 9, he says, We have a righteousness from God that comes through faith in Jesus and not by our works. It's by grace. And here at the end, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So grace is not simply God's provision for us when we fail, but it's, it's, it's everything in the Christian life that enables us to do what God has called us to do. It changes us as individuals and it changes us as a community. So that's what we're talking about this morning, how it changes you, a big thing that it changes about you and me when we understand it, but something that changes about us as a community when we begin to understand it. So the power of graced individuals. Um, before we go into this, before we read this whole section, let me give you a little background, uh, maybe a reminder for some of you about what's going on with Paul at this point. Uh, Paul is under house arrest in Rome as he's writing. You can read about this in the last several chapters of of Acts is because of uh, him preaching the Lord Jesus Christ in a Jewish setting, uh, a crowd began to 
form a mob. And so they're all pointing the finger at Paul when the, the police show up, basically, the Roman soldiers. So they take him into custody, and he appeals to Caesar, and he eventually ends up in Rome under house arrest. And how... House arrest in Rome is not like being in prison here. There are no tax dollars that go to pay for somebody who's in house arrest. If you're under house arrest, everything that's paid for comes out of your own pockets. So it was on Paul's dime. So he's here living in Rome under house arrest, can't go and get a job, can't work in any way. And so these folks in Philippians have sent him money and supplies to help take care of his needs. And then we read this in chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, where Paul is replying to that. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, that last part is a part that sometimes we take out of context. I've heard it out of context. I've probably used it out of context. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, except for slam a basketball. That one's one that I cannot do. Um, I still can't fly. That would be really cool. I cannot literally do all things. And if we begin to look at the context uh, he's talking about here, he he doesn't mean if we uh, have enough faith, God will allow us to accomplish our goals in life and to be successful No, it's saying, Paul is saying that God will enable me to face whatever circumstances I'm in. He will bring me uh, to be able to do that. And the particular thing that Paul is talking about here is uh, to be content. I have learned to be content in any circumstance. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, contentment, as you probably have figured out in your lives, is really hard to come by. It's really hard to be content with our circumstances, with our situation, with everything uh, that's going on, um, we're often discontent. We're discontent when we don't have the thing that we think we deserve. I see what somebody else has and I want that. Uh, Or when I face any kind of discomfort whatsoever, I find myself being, uh, uh, having a lack of contentment in my life. And so we find various ways to try to deal with that. I think the one that's most common uh, in this, uh, in trying to deal with it ourselves is a kind of a growing stoicism, right? So, uh, and that's not really contentment. It's kind of an indifference to things. You know, I can't change it, so I might as well just accept it. Now, the thing with that over a period of time is it leaves you kind of with a sense of a lack of joy in your life. I can't rejoice because I'm, I'm so cynical about the world and I'm indifferent about the world. And then, at the same time, um, we find ourselves just lacking. Even if we have everything we need, I find this to be the case with me. And you find this to be the case with you. Even if I have everything I need, I still find there's this level of lack of content for me. Do you remember John D. Rockefeller? It's a great quote from him years ago where somebody asked him, how much money is enough? Now, if you know anything about him, he's, he was a very wealthy man, probably the wealthiest man in the United States at that point. And somebody asked him, how much money is enough? And his response was, just a little bit more. And we feel that, right? We feel that in our hearts. And so what Paul is telling us here is that uh, stoicism uh, is not the same thing as contentment. Uh, Being comfortable is not the same thing as contentment. Contentment is something different. 
Contentment is a state of satisfied peace. You are completely at peace and satisfied. And Paul is telling us here, it completely transcends our circumstances. It's not a part of our circumstances. Paul talks about this as the, uh, something as being the secret or the power or the key to the Christian life is being content. And he's telling us that the contentment of our hearts is completely due to the contents of our heart. Why are we discontent? Because we're looking to something other than Jesus to find our contentment. And so the secret for him is saying, I have all things in Christ. He gives me the strength for these, uh, to, to be content. So it's all by grace. And when you have grace, it removes any kind of a sense of entitlement where you think, I deserve this and God's not coming through. Let me explain this for just a second. If you have a works mentality towards the Christian life, you have this sense it's where it's kind of a financial transaction between you and God. Where if I obey, he's going to bless me. And if he's not blessing me, either it's because I'm not doing the things I'm supposed to be doing and I need to, I need to pick up my game, right? Or he's failing in some ways. But in your mind, it's a financial transaction. What I want is this, and if I obey God, he's going to make it come into my, my possession. And so if you don't get what you want, then you're going to feel the sense of discontent in the Christian life and in your faith before God. And so what do we need to do? Well, he's saying if you, if you understand it's all by grace and everything that you have is a gift and it's undeserved and God has given to you freely in Jesus, that enables you to approach whatever circumstance and situation you're in and say, I can be content here because of what I have. So if we were to go through uh, the book, uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, when he's talking about grace, he's saying grace is an undeserved favor given to an unworthy recipient by an unobligated giver. And that's grace to us. And, he's, and we see it constantly as we see the biblical truth of God's grace removes all doubt and all discontent. Here's how. If you believe that God loves you and he's with you now, he will, and that he will never leave you or forsake you, and you're not alone in whatever situation you're in, you have him, you can be content. If you believe that Jesus has paid for your sin and that your future hope of heaven is completely sure that no matter what you deal with here, that's where your hope lies, then you can have contentment. God has given us salvation in Christ. And in Romans 8, Paul says, if, he's given a, if, he, if he did not spare his own son, how will he not also along with Christ give us all things? He's saying God is generous and gives us in Christ. And he says God is in control and, and accomplishes his will apart from us. Being jailed, is what Paul says here, has really served to advance the gospel back in Philippians 1. It's really served to advance the gospel. So this comes from an old Puritan by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs. He said, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal to every condition. And Paul uses the word here for secret. Doesn't mean, he doesn't mean that it's hidden and only some people find it. What he means is it's right in front of us and we have to discover it. Because we're not really looking for it. But it's there, the reality of how you become content. So the example that Paul gives uh, elsewhere is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And some of you know this about Paul. Is Paul uh, had what he, was call, what he called a thorn in his flesh. And nobody really knows what that is. Right? They don't know if there was actually a physical ailment. Some people think it had something to do with his eyes. 
Uh, they don't know what it was, but it was a thorn in the flesh. And Paul said, I prayed three times, three times for the Lord to take this away. And we pick up reading in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But the Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So he's saying, I have Christ, and I'm so happy in my circumstances. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in the, law, in the, the will of God because we know he loves us. Contentment. But then he also talks about uh, a change that takes place within the community. He says the gospel changes the way that we relate to people when it matters how we relate to people. Let me say that again, just because you're checking out. It's okay, I'm checking out. The gospel changes the way we relate to people when it matters how we relate to people. Now, at, at, at first blush, you're probably saying, well, Stephen, it always matters how you relate to people. I know, I know, but, it, but you know exactly the situation I'm talking to. Tempers are high, tensions are flaring, and it matters at that moment. It costs you something. You have to actually try to speak in a normal manner to people. And what we, what we see in this passage is, that the church is both a messy and beautiful place because as we talked about, God's grace covers over all of our sins. He knows it's there, but he's covered over all of them in Christ. We all have received grace who are in the church and believe in Jesus. But because we're all people who need grace, we're a bunch of messed up people when we come into the church together and we rub up against one another. And we see this... Uh, when we get to this passage with Euodia and Syntyche in verse 2, he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And that's all we know. <laughs> so some people say Paul wrote the whole letter for just these two people to read the whole letter and then say, okay, now you two need to be able to get along or whatever this happens to be. Um, but we don't know about their relationship. Some people think they might have been sisters. I guess they think that sisters fight a lot. Um, he doesn't say what the conflict was over. Uh, I'm glad that he didn't because if that were the case, we'd probably look and say, well, in this one particular instant, I would have to forgive and get along. But all these other places, I don't have to get along. So he's left it broad for us to kind of say it's applicable across the board. And what he's telling us here is uh, he knows what they have in common. And that's what binds them together. He says they're both in the Lord. They have previously labored side by side together. They both labored with Paul. They both labored for the gospel. They both got along with other people in the group. And they both will be in heaven because their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. He's saying there's something bigger that ought to bind the two of you together. And he says in verse 3, for them to agree in the Lord. And when we read it that, we think, well, they've got to come to a consensus on whatever it is that they disagree on. But that's probably not what he's talking about here because the word that he's using for agree is used elsewhere in his own letters to talk about being of the same mind, the same mindset towards particularly Jesus. And that's what he tells them, to agree in the Lord. 
So what he's telling them is he's, he means that they do not allow anything to divide their relationship in Jesus and they're to approach every matter in the light of Christ so that they see beyond the issue and remain united in him no matter what degree, disagreement they may face. He's saying Jesus overrules everything else. Now, I don't know if you've noticed how applicable that is to the modern setting for us as Christians. Christians often have differences and disagreements about life in the world. And in this room, I know that we have differences and disagreements. But what Paul is telling us is that Jesus is big enough to hold us together. Now, a common critique of of Christianity is how narrow it is. It's white, it's conservative, and it's American. And that is completely wrong. Christianity is not white or conservative or American. That may be the way that we experience, but the church in Africa, Asia, and South America are not white, conservative, and American. Uh, South American. Okay, they're South American. We can, we can grant that. But they're not uh, like us. And those churches in other parts of the world are expanding and they're vibrant. The history of the church cannot be pigeonholed into a political movement, a cultural setting, or a race. It started in the Middle East, and it spread to North Africa, into Asia, and into Europe. What we see in Christianity is a truth so recognizable that people through time across the globe have found it transcendent, compelling, and unifying. Alistair Begg said this. He said, uh, irrespective of... I'm sorry, he's just Irish, had to do it. (laughs) Irrespective of the color of our skin our background, our heritage, or our place of origin. All of those things are ultimately subservient to this amazing truth of the body of Christ. We were all baptized with one spirit. So people from different cultures or different regions have varying sensibilities about a variety of things, which American Christians often express dogmatic certainty, including the way we look at government. And the way we look at political parties. We express dogmatic certainty about them. But there are Bible-believing, Christ-centered, faithful followers of Jesus throughout the American political spectrum. So what does that mean? It means that we must hold tightly to what is clearly explained and clarified in the Bible. Sticking to what Jesus has said, we must listen carefully and charitably to people who hold different perspectives. We must put aside kind of partisan differences and unite on the gospel of Christ, affirming our unity in Christ while acknowledging our differences on many issues. What we have in Christ is greater than what we disagree on in the world. So he's saying we make the Lord our bond with one another. Christ is big enough to unite us all as sinners and he's big enough to unite us in our differences and disagreements. Now I need to do a caveat for just a second because some of you are really worried. Um, we're talking about differences and disagreements. We can have differences and disagreements with people over things that the Bible gives us wiggle room to do that. But the Bible does talk about people who are divisive, that divide the church over issues, and says that is wrong. And so, and Paul's not afraid to call that out in various places. So back in chapter 3, Paul says, watch out for the dogs, those mutilators of the flesh who who uh, teach false doctrines to you. 
right? That's something he says. We don't, we don't allow that in. We eventually have to put that out. In fact, in Titus chapter 3, Paul says this to a young church planter. He says, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So the Bible does say there are, there are occasions where we do have to draw the line and say, that is just so far afield from what the, the gospel is teaching. That can't have a place here. But there are so many other issues where uh, we draw tighter lines that the Bible doesn't draw, where we have, we have to say, that's a disagreement. But in the main, we are united on the most important aspects. The Bible is very clear about false teachers, abusive people, divisive people, gossip, slanders, slanderers, people who intentionally hurt others for their own gain. The Bible says we have to put that away because it's hurtful towards the body of Christ. So, the Bible enables us, the gospel, the grace of God, enables us to unite with people who are very, very different. If God can accept me and all my brokenness and flaws, then he can accept us with all of our brokenness and flaws. Not all sinners look like me, for which we're all grateful, right? But not all sinners look like you, and not all sinners look the same. So, we let Christ be the one who unites us. And then there's something else I think that's very important here. There's a care that's fueled within the community uh, that comes from grace. Philippians 4.18 says this, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, and acceptable, pleasing to God. And he goes on also to talk about the fact that he, he doesn't have, he's content. He doesn't need anything from them. So this is talking about money in the church. And you know what? I find that when the topic of money comes up in the church, I'm really skittish about that. And probably you're pretty skittish about that. Because most of us have had the experience of hearing about or seeing people on television and elsewhere who in the name of Christ exploit other people for money. And so I'm pretty skittish of any, any kind of conversation and talking about this in this passage in fact, what's interesting about this passage is this is not a charlatan preacher asking for money. Most commentators say that Paul is actually doing the exact opposite. Don't send me any more money. I'm fine. I'm taken care of. I'm satisfied. God is taking care of my needs. You don't have to do that. But what he's doing is expressing joy in their love and concern uh, due to their connection to Christ. Because Paul is rejoicing. He sees clear fruit of the gospel's work in them because generosity to those in need at cost to yourself is a sign that you understand the grace of God in your own life. Uh, it's a sign of God's grace in a person's life. A person who's received grace from the hand of a generous God willingly gives out of their own pocket to the needs of other people. Because God has given so freely to us, we give freely to other people out of kindness and mercy. So what is he saying? He's saying, one, the gospel of God's grace begins to change you from the inside out and make you content. The gospel of God's grace uh, makes you a generous person. The gospel of God's grace makes you want to take, take steps towards people, in, even when they're different, and erasing some of those lines that we draw culturally and due to our race and our upbringing and other things, to erase those things and to move towards people who are not like us. So in other words, the gospel of grace doesn't just cover over your sin. It certainly does, and I'm so grateful for that. But the gospel of God's grace begins to change you from who you were before, challenging things about you, and enabling you to live 
a different kind of life. Let me give you an example of that. I read a, actually watched a video this week of a testimony from a guy named uh, Lowell Ivy. Have any of you ever heard of him? Well, you will now. Okay, so Lowell Ivy. Hmm. Lowell, when he was three years old, was abandoned by his mother in a hotel room. And then he was put into the system. Eventually, he was adopted. And he said the earliest indicators that something was wrong with him was when he, the day he was adopted, right after that, he pulled a blunt pocket knife from his pocket and, a, and uh, threatened his new adopted sisters. Something's wrong. So as he got older, you know, he, he made his way through. After he graduated from high school, he went into the military. And uh, in the military, he actually got involved with drugs, and he got involved with sale, uh, selling drugs. And, while he, and so he, um, he was brought up on charges. He said 16 felony counts in the military, and some of you probably know what's going to happen to him at this point. Uh, so he knew what was going to happen to him at this point, and he went AWOL. And uh, he got a plane ticket to Los Angeles, flew to Los Angeles, and while he was there, he, full, he fell in with a group of people who were robbing uh, convenience stores and a variety of things. He fell in with them, and pretty soon they started a spree from state to state robbing different places. So they ended up in Texas, and I guess you don't mess with people in Texas. Uh, he was uh, caught and uh, sentenced to 17 years in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. So the first weekend he's in the criminal justice system in Texas, there's a riot in the prison. And he's watching people get stabbed in this. And he said, I realized at this point uh, that everyone in the prison system took sides, particularly regarding race. And that eventually led him into a white supremacist prison gang. This is a great story, right? You're kind of like, where's this going? Hang with me. So... He was transferred to a maximum security prison called a gladiator farm. Not, get Russell Crowe out of your mind. This is not something that's really cool. Um, when he arrived on that unit, he arrived to a pre-existing war between the blacks and the whites, and the black people, the white people in the prison system. And so as soon as he was moved into his room, a guy, a, a, a black guy yelled at him and said, you have a shank! And uh, that's a knife basically a homemade knife. He didn't have one, but he said he realized at this point, I need to get one. So he got a shank. And so within that week, he and this other guy have been eyeing one another. And for whatever reason, he says this never happens, but it happened this day. Both of their prison cell doors were left open. Everybody else was, were closed. And so Lowell said he came at this other inmate with his shank. And he said, thankfully, one of the prison guards was there to step between them to keep him from killing this guy. But at this point, Lowell is put in solitary confinement. Because he's in a, a white supremacist pr- prison gang and he's got tattoos up and down his arms, and he realized, uh, I'm just, this is where I'm going to be. Because once you find, they find out you're in a gang, you're in a group like this, they can keep you in solitary confinement indefinitely. So he's by himself. He has a radio. And one night he's scanning through the dials and he comes across this radio show where he hears a guy explain the gospel. Uh, I think the program was called To Shine the Light of the Gospel, <laughs> something like that. And so he, Lowell said that the Lord shone the light of the gospel into his heart. And he said uh, that the first thing that God showed him was his hatred for other people and his sin and his racism And he said, at this point, he was in despair because he knew it was true. 
and he said to the Lord, um, I'm going to hell. And he said, suddenly something changed within him. And he said, the Lord did it. The tears were streaming and he simply fell on his knees before him. And this is what he, he said. He's, he communicated to the Lord in his prayer. Lord, make me a Christian. Change my heart. Take this away and help me to follow you. And he said, God did that. So what he, this is an interesting thing, just in light of what we've been talking about, how the gospel unites people who are very different. He said what he later found out was that the only group in prison that didn't segregate according to race were the, the Christians. The only ones who didn't segregate according to race were the Christians. But he was in solitary confinement. He didn't find that out till later. You know, he's by himself. Uh, so the Lord used it to, he said, but he used his time well. The Lord used it to mature him. So he read his Bible as much as he could. He found radio programs on, and some of you love R.C. Sproul. He found R.C. Sproul on the radio show. He would listen to these, and he said, so during this time, he's basically, basically going through his own seminary course uh, while he's in solitary confinement. And so Lowell said this. He said, the Lord was in the cell with me. Despite all the wickedness of my heart, and all the evil things I had done, all the people that I had hurt, especially my own family, he set me free. My name is Lowell Ivy. I was set free in prison by God's grace. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've learned to be content no matter the circumstances, whether in jail or whether free. You know where he is now? He's got a wife, he's got three kids. And he's a Presbyterian pastor up in Virginia. God can change us. It's the grace that changes us. Let me pray for us. That's a pretty dramatic story, Father. It's a very dramatic story. But all of our stories where we come to faith in Christ, no matter when we come to faith in Christ, are dramatic. Some of us came when we were young. When we were little, we didn't make the same kind of choices that Lowell had presented before him but your grace is just as great for us. And some of us are struggling even today with the things we've done, the things we've said, and wondering if there could be grace for us. And I'm grateful for Lowell's story. I'm grateful for Paul's testimony. I'm grateful that Paul knows that what we need more than anything else is grace. And I pray that you would show that to those of us who are struggling with whether or not you could accept us, that we would see your grace. Lord, we're thankful for the book of Philippians. We're grateful for the things that we've learned over the course of the past several months. We pray that you would enable us to continue to live by faith and to live in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bless us as we sing this last song. We pray that you would make it an offering of our souls and our hearts to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.